Insomniacs Anonymous presents the creepiest true stories collected from the darkest corners of the web. Listener discretion is advised. I bet there's a body in the trunk. This happened when I was a teenager, around 14 or 15, in high school. I had a boyfriend at the time who lived a fairly short walk from the school and we would often walk to his place after school to hang out for a few hours before I went home. Because we took the same route so often, I knew all the houses and landmarks on the way. In January, my boyfriend and I started to notice a car that had been parked in the same spot for quite a while. We thought nothing of it at the time. Maybe the car had died in the cold, and whoever owned it couldn't afford to have it repaired. But, as spring came and the snow melted, the car was still there, parked in the same spot at the end of my boyfriend's street. We passed it almost every day as we walked there after school. And as the days grew warmer, a rotten stench started to arise from the car. I joked to my boyfriend, I bet there's a body in the trunk. And we laughed it off. But we were curious now, so one day we peered inside the car windows as we passed. The car was messy, but not filled with trash or food. A discarded backpack lay across the back seat, and papers were strewn here and there. It just looked like any ordinary car, except we knew it hadn't moved for months, and the smell was indescribable. The smell continued to get worse as the spring turned to summer. One day, when I couldn't come over for some reason, my boyfriend and his dad decided to investigate the car. They found that the doors were unlocked, and the keys were inside the car. That was pretty strange. They went around to the back and popped open the trunk. My boyfriend told me that a swarm of black flies flew up from the inside. The smell was definitely coming from the trunk. Inside were a bunch of black garbage bags. My boyfriend and his dad called the cops at this point. The cops later told us that inside the bags was rotting meat, cut into pieces. The first pieces of meat they tested belonged to a pig. But a few weeks later, my boyfriend's dad got another call. Under the pig meat were the bones of a human child. Whoever left that car sitting unlocked, with the keys inside, was obviously hoping the car would be stolen. It still gives me shivers. The Tooth Man When I was about six years old, around 2004, my mum started taking my sister and I to Dr. Daniel's pediatric dental office. The dental centre was located inside a giant yellow mansion that also doubled as Dr. Daniel's house. It was honestly gorgeous. When I first started going to the dentist, I was extremely shy and actually suffered from selective mutism and had a lot of autistic-like tendencies. Needless to say, I relied heavily on my mother's comfort and for someone to give me a voice, because it was extremely anxiety-inducing for me to talk to strangers, especially men for some reason. When my sister and I got called in from the waiting room, my mum followed us into the office until she was told by Dr. Daniels that parents were not allowed to be with their children as it taught kids independence, to which my mum complied to. Once in there, he immediately separated my sister and I, and in reaction to that I cried, because I felt so scared. Dr. Daniels did not like crying, so he grabbed me and put his hands over my mouth and nose and shook me aggressively, warning me that if I continued to cry and scare the other kids, that he would make my situation a lot worse. Obviously this scared me even more, so I started to cry more. 
Dr. Daniels had had enough and took me into the house part of the office, where he screamed at me, grabbed me by the neck, and shoved me. His hygienist Judy came over and told me if I continued to cry, she would spank me so hard, I wouldn't know what had hit me. Afterwards, he gave me a juice concoction and let me alone in his house for about five minutes until he took me back into the dental office and did the work on my teeth. I guess I instinctively knew that if I wanted to survive, I just had to act like I was not terrified and hold back the tears. All I wanted was my mum. After the first appointment, my sister and I told mum that we were scared of the dentist and that he was a mean man, but she just took it as me being anxious so we continued to see him. Each visit was just as terrifying. Every time we pulled into the mansion, my heart just melted away inside my chest. There was no longer a pretty look to it. Every time we went to the dentist, or the tooth man, as he called himself, we always had heavy dental work procedures done. We had seals done on several baby teeth, and plenty of teeth removed with his fingers, with no regards to pain levels at all. And often, when having a tooth removal or seals done, your mouth had to be opened with a retractor. He would leave us there with the retractor on for about 45 minutes or so before he came to do the work on our teeth. Sometimes he would eat his lunch while we sat there with our mouth pried open. Probably one of the worst pains I have ever felt in my life. I remember one time when I was in the third grade. I had been in the chair waiting with the retractor on for an hour. I was in so much pain I couldn't take it. I sat up on the chair and tried to scream and cry as loud as I could. Dr. Daniels came rushing over, angry as could be, took the retractor off, and took me back into his house, where he screamed at me for being a baby and scaring all the other kids. Then he took me back to the dental chair and pinned me down to my seat in some sort of straitjacket. He put the retractor back in my mouth and told me I'd have to wait longer because I caused such a scene. All I could do was shed silent tears and drool everywhere. Afterwards, my mouth would become so swollen and filled with rashes, it hurt to talk for days. It would leave bruises and swelling as soon as I left his chair. He would often tell my mother I was a difficult patient, if I so much as winced at his torture. Once he removed six of my teeth at once, and I could barely eat. When I was in seventh grade, I started getting some new braces, and we started seeing an orthodontist. Not long after that, we stopped seeing Dr. Daniels and started seeing a new dentist, who was actually nice. I had never known that getting your teeth clean didn't have to feel like going through a sore trap. I think my mum took us out of Dr. Daniel's practice when the orthodontist looked at our dental records and saw so much unnecessary procedures being done in our mouths. Not long ago, I was having a conversation with a friend about our childhood fears, and instantly my mind went to the tooth man. Curious, I googled him to see what had happened to him. And to my happiness, the practice was shut down. Also, under his name was a Yelp page that was still up. The page was filled with numerous one-star reviews from former patients. They were using the page as an outlet to express their trauma. I started to cry because their experiences were so close and some identical to what I went through when I was a kid. It was so sad, but at the same time, really validating to know I was not alone. I shake thinking about this. I really pray that he hasn't opened up another practice somewhere else. His murder ballad was picked up by local radio. During college I dated a fairly well-known and talented local musician named Tim. 
As horrible boyfriends tend to be in the beginning, he was a loving, attentive, charismatic, seemingly normal partner. He made me mixtapes, cooked me my favourite meals, and dedicated songs to me at open mic gigs around town. I was young and foolish, naive, and deeply smitten by his mysterious, dark, artistic allure. However, over the course of our year-long relationship, his mental health declined severely. He had the ability to appear lucid and normal around other people, but in private he began suffering delusions, lying compulsively, and creating art that focused on very dark themes. I was worried sick, and his condition was exhausting, but I did my best to be kind, understanding, and support him. I loved him and believed that he shouldn't have to struggle with his mental illness alone. On one occasion, he vanished without a trace for a full day. I found his apartment empty, lights on, front door wide open, phone on his nightstand. I took a few deep breaths and called all around the city for hours before finally discovering he had been involuntarily checked into a mental hospital. I did my best to stay strong for him, seeing him every day during supervised visitation, bringing him his favourite books to pass the time, and holding him as he sobbed that it was all a mistake, that he did not belong there. It was surreal to see my gentle, intelligent, normal, albeit depressed boyfriend, surrounded by visibly insane, long-term psych ward patients. The place was like something out of a horror movie. In retrospect, none of the staff ever told me the real reason why he was there. I was too polite or naive to ask. Our relationship ended a few months later. I found undeniable evidence that he was cheating on me, and secretly relieved, confronted him. I told him to leave my apartment and never come back. He cracked. The gentle Tim I had known and loved melted away to reveal a new persona, with dead, wild, animal eyes. He threatened to end himself with pills unless I took him back, but I was so extremely done that I called the police. They weren't much help, but Tim left. I blocked him everywhere and never contacted him again, but he left me insane voicemails from different numbers for weeks afterwards. I was relatively unshaken and things returned to normal. I graduated and got a sweet job in the same cool college city. Six months later, I woke up to concerned texts from mutual friends saying they didn't want to freak me out, but Tim was off his meds, clearly manic, and was posting a newly written song all over social media. His best friend, who hadn't been in touch since the breakup, sent me an apology along with a screenshot of the lyrics. That got my attention. I won't repeat them here, because they'll lead back to his band camp, but the song was pretty explicitly about my abuse and my murder. I checked his profiles myself from a friend's account, and he was posting dozens and dozens of totally insane rambling statuses, most of them about me. They flip-flopped between flowery love prose and murderous imagery. His friends were reacting with concern, but a few egged him on, probably thinking he was just venting about an ex. I decided it'd be best to continue ignoring him, but I saved the screenshots just in case. A few days later, while at work, I looked up from my computer to see Tim enter into the far side of the studio. My blood turned to ice. He was talking to my creative director. I ducked down and bolted into my favourite project manager's office, slammed the door, and unleashed upon her what must have been a nearly unintelligible explanation of what was happening. I was shaking so hard I could barely speak, but Nancy was amazing. She understood almost immediately. She snuck me out of the building and drove me in her car to a police station, 
My co-workers later told me that Tim was there to inquire about an open designer position. He is not a designer. He had brought with him a portfolio and an elaborately fabricated work history that sounded legit. At the end of his interview, he casually asked if I still worked there. He said we used to collaborate. Oh, and he had written a song for me, and had been picked up by the local radio this morning. He asked my co-workers to forward his warmest regards. That phrase still makes my skin crawl. He then left, found my car in the parking lot, and paced behind it until the police arrived. Unfortunately, he wasn't enough of a public menace for the police to bring him in that day, but the incident helped me to secure a restraining order against him. My company was amazing too. I was deeply embarrassed about my literally insane ex coming to the studio, but the CEO filed a trespassing charge against him and created an action plan to keep me safe if it happened again. Not long afterwards, I moved to a different city, and that was that. Haven't heard from him since. However, I discovered the most alarming part later. His roommate at the time, Liz, went through a similar experience with him during his breakdown, and when we compared notes much later, she said she had seen a large axe in Tim's car the same week it had all gone down. She said that she was worried about Tim's Facebook activity, so she removed the axe and hid it. Tim was so angry that he completely trashed the house and never came back. And if our timelines are correct, that must have been just before he came into my workplace for his interview. Mail from Hell This is a story from my childhood, one of the ones that haunt me to this day. At the time, I must have been around seven I was visiting the Midwest, Kansas, from South Korea, where I was born and raised. I was visiting family. On that particular night, the adults, our aunt and uncle, and our parents, were going to have a date night, so our parents had ordered us pizzas before they left and waited for it to arrive, so we wouldn't have to open the door to anyone. My aunt and uncle had two sons. They were ages 15 and 8. Like I said before, I was 7 at the time. My older sister was 11, and our baby brother was a young age of three. We saw our parents out the garage entryway. They made sure we knew the rules, and we could recite them back to them. They also made sure we knew where the telephones were, and the emergency numbers to accompany them. It was going to be a fun night, with no parents. Or so we thought. It had maybe been an hour or two after our parents left. We were downstairs in the basement, we were down there watching movies, playing air hockey, things of that nature. We weren't being loud or anything like that, and even if we were, it wouldn't be too big of a deal, because the way houses were in Kansas, the basements are built into the ground in case of a tornado. I had gone upstairs with my older cousin because I wanted a drink of chocolate milk, and I couldn't reach the cups alone, so we wandered upstairs into the kitchen, which was on the far end of the house, and the others stayed downstairs continuing their games. We had been upstairs for maybe 15 to 20 minutes, because while I was drinking my milk, my older cousin was making snacks since we were planning to watch a movie. Then, all of a sudden, we hear the doorbell ring. I remember my cousin looked at me and told me to stay here, because it was odd that the doorbell was ringing. It wasn't super late, but it certainly wasn't early. It was around 8 o'clock. My cousin started to creep towards the door quietly, it was unnerving for someone to be ringing the doorbell, 
and before he's even halfway to the door, whoever's on the other side starts rapidly ringing the doorbell, over and over, the constant ringing echoing through the house. And by this point, I'd looked over towards the staircase. I saw our other siblings starting to creep up the stairs, with the exclusion of the baby, who was still asleep in the crib in the guest room. The oldest of the kids, let's call him James from here on out, put a finger to his lips and told us to be quiet, to make it seem like nobody was home, despite there being lights on. He crept closer to the door as the banging and ringing continued, and he peeked through the peephole. I'd never seen my cousin look so freaked out. His face drained of colour, and he backed away from the door rapidly, and he told us all to go downstairs, but of course, we didn't listen. My older sister shoved past him and looked through the peephole herself, and for whatever reason, whatever was on the other side of the door made her have the exact same reaction. She stumbled back from the door, just as pale. At the time, I didn't understand what was going on. I don't think any of us younger kids really did, but something wasn't right. After a while, maybe 20 minutes, whoever was at the door stopped ringing, and all was quiet again. It seemed like maybe they'd given up. Maybe they thought nobody was home. If only we knew how wrong we were. We all sat in silence for a while after this. My cousin, who I'm going to call Kyle, mustered up the courage to ask his brother James why James and my sister were acting so skittish. James told us there was a man wearing dark clothes and seemed to be carrying some type of package or large box, but he couldn't see his face. Kyle was convinced it was just a neighbour trying to drop off a package that might have got mixed up in the mail, so we all agree that was the probable cause. Until we realised whoever was ringing the doorbell didn't just leave the package on the porch. Isn't that what most neighbours would do? If nobody answered, they'd just leave it? And why would they try to bring it over to the house at night instead of just waiting till the next day? But we thought it was over and done with, so we pushed it to the back of our minds. We all went back to the kitchen, grabbed the snacks, and started to head back downstairs. Until we heard banging again. But it wasn't from the porch this time. We were in shock. We froze in fear. It was coming from right behind us. We turned slowly and looked back in the direction from which we came. We were currently standing in the dining room. We had already passed through the kitchen. It was like someone was banging on the kitchen window. You know the one that's typically above the sink? So James and my older sister, who I'll call Nicole at this point, got down on their hands and knees, and they crawled back into the kitchen. Just as quickly as they crawled into the kitchen to take a peek, they crawled back to us, in hyperspeed, and they told us to get down low as we crawled into the den further down the hallway. James had us all huddled close to the fireplace, out of sight of the windows, and he told us to stay there. He was taking charge. James quickly crawled away. I don't know where he was going, but I was scared. The banging was getting louder, and I was getting closer and closer. At some point I started to cry, and I remember Kyle put his hand over my mouth, and my sister was hugging us tight. And around that time we see James starting to appear back around the corner. He has a baseball bat. He crawls past us and put a finger to his lips again. That's when we realised he was crawling towards the doggy door. He was attempting to close off the one entrance to the house that wasn't locked. Thankfully, he managed to get it latched in time, because we don't think the man outside had realised that the house had a doggy door. 
but when he heard the lock click in place, the banging became more erratic, more violent. Then, all of a sudden, much like before, the banging stopped. But we heard pacing. Somebody was walking back and forth across the porch. Slowly, deliberately, thump, 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 thump. His heavy boots thundered across the red oak porch. And then, without warning, the pacing stopped, and it became quiet, eerily quiet. Then the man called out, Won't you open the door? I have a package for you. We didn't respond. We stayed quiet, or as quiet as we could be, with the way our hearts were pounding, and how ragged our breathing was. The stranger called out again, Open the door! And again we didn't answer. The man called out angrily, I said open the door, I have a package. Like before, we didn't answer, nor did we make any sudden movements. The man started banging again, this time directly on the panel window of the room we were sitting in, yelling, I know you're in there, I know you can hear me, open the door or I'll open it for you. Bang, bang, bang. The window rattled and shook violently with each impact from the strange man. We didn't have any neighbours close by, so we didn't think anyone could hear the commotion. But, while he was making all this noise, we took the opportunity to book it into another room and get to a phone. At one point, while we were on the phone with the police, they asked us if we could describe the man. So Kyle and I decided to be brave. So if something did happen to us that night, they would at least have a better description of who did it. We called back into the den and dared to look out of a small corner of the window. We gently moved the curtains out of the way. The man is still there. He had moved the shutters off the outside window. They were basically hanging off their hinges now. It was then we made eye contact with the deranged man. I don't think before this night I'd ever believed there's pure evil in this world, but when I looked into that man's eyes, I didn't see a soul. He was something unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Animalistic may be the only word I could describe it as, and something I'd never want to see again. When he saw us, he smiled, a twisted grin that I'm sure he thought was reassuring, and he crouched down so he could get a better look at us. Then he said, Don't you want your mail? You have mail. I can give it to you, if only you open the door. I remember just grabbing onto Kyle's hand for dear life, and Kyle shook his head no and threw the curtain back over the window before we even had a chance to move any further. The man started violently banging on the window again. At this point, James had had enough. He passed the phone to my sister and he yelled, Leave us alone! The police are on their way! You're not getting in here! After that, it seemed like the man panicked. The banging abruptly stopped, and then we heard rapid footsteps on the porch. Kyle and I peeked out the window again. The man was running through the yard, past all the trees. He jumped the fence. We stayed on the phone with the police until they arrived, and our parents arrived not long after. But the man was never caught. To this day, whenever the doorbell rings, when I'm not expecting a visitor, my heart drops and I break out in a cold sweat. All the red flags were there. Honestly, I don't know. Maybe he was trying to be nice, but every red flag was raised and every alarm inside me was going crazy. This just happened a few hours ago. I'm safe now and I don't think I have anything to worry about. I'm going to another country to see a band I love. I found a cheap Airbnb online and booked it. I was supposed to come in late last night, but my flight was delayed, 
Train missed. A nightmare trip all over. I was supposed to get to his place after midnight, and he told me that was totally fine. I checked the reviews about him, and all of them said he was a lovely host, and really nice. But I noticed that all of these reviews had been written within a few weeks. Red flag, number one. Then I missed the final train, and wasn't able to get to the place, so I told him that I couldn't make it, but I'll be there tomorrow, which is today. And he said okay. I got to the train station in the city, and I decided to walk, because I didn't have much cash with me. I walked for about 40 minutes before arriving at a place that could be called Run Down, at best. I see drug dealers everywhere. You can just tell sometimes. The door which had the right number on it was just a white door next to a shop. Red flag number two, three, and four. I had never been able to get a hold of him. I had his number, but it felt like it always went to an answering machine, and he rarely answered my texts. I walked into the shop and asked if someone lived there, and the guy in the shop says, A few, who are you looking for? I told him my host's name, and he was playing with his phone, in a way that I couldn't see anything of what he was doing. And bingo, I get a message from my host. He's almost there. I leave the shop, realising, red flag, number five. Half an hour later, a guy comes up in a car with a girl in the front seat and says, I'm your host. It's the wrong address on the site. Hop in the back and I'll take you there. Red flag number six. I just said, you know what? Thank you, but I'll find somewhere else and walk away. Well, that's it for this episode. I look forward to your company next time.